Chapters 39 and 40 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 39. Smugglery. Papa, dear, said Wynnette, as she re-entered the dilapidated carriage, we must go to the sexton's cottage to bid good-bye to the old man. Yes, my dear. Kirby, go back to your father's cottage before we turn into the high road, said Mr. Force. The carriage rattled on, and in a short time drew up before the sexton's lodge at the great gate of the churchyard. The old man still sat before the door, but he was smoking, and his bald head and long white beard were enveloped in smoke. He took the pipe from his mouth the instant he heard the sound of wheels, and he held out his hand to welcome Wynnette as she ran up to him. "'Ah, my little leddy, I ha' read the lad's letter. Ah, I do get a letter by mail from him come the first week on every month.' but a letter brought by a leddy's hand, and she has seen him face to face, mayhap within a month. Ah, but that's better. I have seen your son, and shaken hands with him, and talked to him for hours within twenty-three days, said Wynnette, after making a rapid calculation. Eh, now, is that possible? I rode on his train all day on the twenty-sixth of May, two days before we sailed for England, and this, you know, is the eighteenth of June. Eh, then, "'Look at that new. Only in twenty-three days. He's not that far away, after all, is he, Miletti? "'Oh, no. Why, it's nothing. Only across the big herring pond, you know.' The old man stared helplessly. "'That is what they call it for fun, because it is such a little matter to go across it. Why, people say to each other when they meet on the deck of a steamer, "'Going across? And another will say, Not today. So you see what a trifle it is.' "'So it must be indeed, me little Letty.' and your words ha' comforted me more than the counsels of his reverence. Such a little thing, go across, not to-day. Yes, that is a comfort. And the good bacco is another comfort. The bacco was in the parcel you brought me, Miletti, and you couldn't get such bacco as this. No, not for love, nor yet for money. Not if you was a dying for it. Why, the Jarl of Middlemore would be proud to smoke sitch bacco. I know he would. It must ha' cost a power o' money." I reckon my lad be gettin' rich over yonder to send his feyther sitch bacco as this, and the duty on it must a been a staggering loike. Here Wynnette started. She had not seen any duty paid on that tobacco, nor indeed had the custom-house officers at Liverpool seen the tobacco, but she had not even thought of this before. And yet I ha a greater comfort even than this bacco as is fit for the turkey of all Constantinople to smoke. My lad writes as he is coming over with his missus to see me next autumn. That's the crooning comfort, me leddy. That's the crooning comfort. Wynnette now took leave of the old man and returned to her seat in the carriage. He arose with difficulty and stood up, bowing to the party, while Mr. Force and Lee raised their hats as the carriage drove off. They returned upon their way, repassed the front of the old manor house, now again closed up and gloomy, turned into the Oak Avenue, and in a few minutes came to the great gate, which was opened by Mrs. Dillon, the keeper of the lodge. She smiled and curtsied as the old carriage passed. Lee, who was nearest to her, reached out his hand and dropped a piece of silver in her palm. She curtsied again. The carriage turned into the high road and began the journey back to Angleton. The sun had set, and even the afterglow had faded from the western horizon, yet still the long twilight of summer nights in these latitudes prevailed, and the greater stars shone out one by one as they rattled on, uphill and downhill, over the rolling moor, until at last they came in view of the lights in the quiet village. In ten minutes they entered the street and passed under the archway of the Anglesia Arms, 
the hungriest and weariest set of travelers who had ever entered that ancient hostelry. Jonah jumped from his seat and secured his horse. Mr. Force alighted and handed out Wynnette. Lee followed them. He had scarcely spoken a word since leaving the mausoleum. The landlady came out to meet them in her Sunday gown of black silk and a new cap. "'I hope as you've had a pleasant day, sir,' she said to Mr. Force, who was the first to meet her. "'Thank you, madame. We have had a very hungry day, at any rate. And if you please, we would like just such a spread as you gave us last evening,' replied Abel Force. "'You shall have it, sir. It will be on the table in twenty minutes.' By this time they had reached the parlor, and Mr. Force was pulling off his gloves, when Wynnette said, "'Papa, I shall run up to my room and take off my things and wash my face, but I will be back in a little while.' "'Very well, my dear.' Wynnette vanished. Mr. Force sat down in the large armchair. Lee stood at the window and stared out at nothing whatever. Jonah, in a clean white apron, and the official towel thrown over his arm, came in, offered Mr. Force the Angleton advertiser, and then began to pull and stretch the perfectly smooth tablecloth this way and that to show his zeal. Presently he went out, and Wynnette returned to the room. She glanced around, and seeing no one present but her two companions, drew a chair to her father's side, threw herself into it, and exclaimed, "'Oh, Papa, I have been aching and burning and throbbing to tell you something, but could not get a chance, because that man was always present, and I was afraid he might inform on us and get us arrested, and I don't know what the penalty might be. Imprisonment and penal servitude, perhaps. But for all that I am delighted, perfectly beside myself with delight.' "'What are you talking of, Wynnette, my dear? "'Here comes that man again. "'We must be cautious, though I could dance in triumph,' said Wynnette. "'At this moment Jonah re-entered the parlour with an ample waiter, "'on which were piled the china, glass, and cutlery, "'with which he hastened to set the table. "'When he had left the room again, Wynnette continued in a mysterious whisper, "'Papa, I have committed smugglery.' "'Smugglery, my dear. "'There is no such word.' Well, then there ought to be, and henceforth there is. I was born to enrich the language, and to commit smugglery, and I am proud and delighted. But I should have been ever so much prouder, and no end to be delighted, if I had intended to commit. But, ah me, it was an accident. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And others become great by accident, such is my case. You rattle-trap, what are you talking about?' "'Smuggling, Papa. That parcel I brought to old Mr. Kirby contained a tin box of choice tobacco, and the duty is higher and the excise law stringent, and we never paid a cent.' Mr. Force looked aghast, and then burst into a laugh. "'How did it happen, Wynnette?' he inquired, when he had done laughing. "'I did not know the thing was tobacco.' "'No more did I. I wish I had. But I didn't. And the officer searched all our trunks and all our bags, and I carried that parcel in my hand, and he never even looked at it.' Oh, I am so proud of having smuggled that tobacco. I wish I had intended it. But henceforth I do intend it. I mean to smuggle every time I can get a chance. Not for any profit to myself, but for the principle of the thing. The Lord never made the excise laws, and so my conscience is not bound by them. And I never helped to make them, and so my honor is not bound by them. But you, Papa, must keep them, because you have been a lawmaker. Wynnette's discourse was cut short by the entrance of the waiter with the supper which he proceeded to arrange on the table. "'All ready, maester,' he said, with a flourish. Wynnette took her seat at the head of the table to pour out the tea. Mr. Force and Lee sat down at opposite sides. Jonas stayed until Mr. Force told him he need not wait. 
Then he went out and was met at the door by his sister Hester, who inquired, "'What was into parcels to Letty carried to Grandfather?' "'Bacco, sent by Uncle John.' "'Oh, nothing but bacco?' said the girl, in a tone of disappointment. "'There ain't nothing better in this world nor bacco,' replied the boy, as their voices passed out of hearing. The travelers finished their supper, and soon after retired for the night. CHAPTER Forty, LEE'S DESPAIR It was a bright June morning when our small party of travelers, having breakfasted well at the Anglesea Arms, and settled with the landlady, once more entered the dilapidated one-horse carriage to be driven to the railway station. As the front of the carriage was open, and every word spoken by the travelers could be heard by the driver, there was but little conversation indulged in except what related to the weather or the scenery. The drive over the moors, although in the springless vehicle on the rough up-and-down hill, it shook the passengers severely, was in other respects very pleasant. They reached the little way-station in good time, and had only a few minutes to wait before the train came up. Mr. Force was fortunate in securing a compartment for himself and his companions, and it was not until they were all three seated within it, and the train was in motion again that any opportunity for private conversation was given. "'Well, we have spent three days. I had nearly said we have lost three days on our quest. And what have we gained?' gloomily inquired Mr. Force. "'Nothing apparently but the knowledge that the deepest-dyed villain in the whole world enjoys in his own neighborhood the reputation of a saint, a sage, a hero, and a philanthropist rolled into one. It is very curious that a man may be such an accomplished hypocrite all his life, as to deceive all his neighbors, and then to go off into a foreign country and give reins to his evil nature and reveal himself as a pure devil. Clearly he must have been in California when his wife was taken ill.' Clearly he married the widow Wright during his wife's lifetime, robbed the dupe, and fled back to England in time to play the hypocrite at Lady Mary's deathbed, and act chief mourner at her funeral. Then, under pretense that he could not bear the house where he missed her every hour, hastened back to America, but giving his dupe a wide berth went to the north instead of the south, and honored with his presence Niagara Falls, where we— Forgathered with the devil, put in Wynnette. True, my dear, we did and we all suffered in consequence. Then turning to the young midshipman, who sat buried in his bitter thoughts, he said, "'Lee, my dear boy, do not be so utterly cast down. There must be some way out of this trouble, and we will try to find it. Let us do our best, and trust in providence.' The young man shrugged his shoulders impatiently at this well-meant piece of commonplace philosophy, as he replied, "'Yes, uncle, there is a way out of it, if you would only take it.' "'What way, Lee?' "'The divorce court.' Lee, the very word divorce, is an offense to decent ears. Uncle, the most straight-laced of all the Christian sects, permit divorce under certain circumstances. The Westminster Catechism, that strictest of all moral and religious codes, provides for it. If all the world's church and state were to meet in convention and provide for it, I would have none of it, except, except, as the very last resort. And then, Lee, I should feel it as the very greatest humiliation of my life. "'Oh, uncle, listen, Lee, now that we know that Anglesia's wife was living at the time of his marriage with the widow Wright, we also know that marriage was unlawful, and now that we furthermore know that his wife was dead at the time of his marriage with Odalite Force, we also know that this last marriage was lawful. Uncle, uncle, I cannot bear. One moment, Lee, do not be so impetuous. I said lawful, however wicked and immoral. And because it was lawful, Lee, my dear daughter is bound by it, to a certain extent, and cannot form any matrimonial engagement while this bond exists. 
"'But good heaven, sir! Patiently, hear me out. "'But because that marriage was wicked and immoral, "'it shall never go a step further. "'It shall never be completed. "'That villain shall never see or speak to my daughter again. "'I swear it before a high heaven. "'I shall keep Odalite at home under my own immediate protection. "'If the scoundrel is not hanged or sent to the devil "'in some other way before many years,' I suppose I shall be compelled to advise my daughter to seek relief from the law. She could get it without the slightest difficulty. But why not now? pleaded the young man. Because of the humiliation, it will seem a less matter years hence. And in the meantime, said Lee bitterly, I am to cherish murder in my heart day and night by wishing that man dead. Hush, Lee, hush. Such thought is sin and leads to crime." Lee said no more, but fell into a gloomy silence that lasted until the train ran into Lancaster Station. They went to dine at the Royal Oak, and from that point Mr. Force telegraphed to Enderby Castle for a carriage to meet the party in the evening at Nethermost. Then they took the afternoon train and started on their homeward journey. The sun was setting when they ran into the little wayside station. A handsome open carriage, driven by the Earl's old coachman, awaited them. They entered it at once, and the coachman turned the horses' heads and began to ascend the graded and winding road that led up to the top of the cliff, and then drove all along the edge of the precipice in the direction of the castle. It was a magnificent prospect, with the moors rolling off in hill and vale, but always rising toward the range of mountains on the east, and the ocean rolling away toward the western horizon, where the sky was still aflame with the afterglow of the sunset, while straight before them, though many miles distant up the coast, stretched out into the sea the mighty promontory of Enderby Cliff, with the ruined border castle standing on its crest, and the ocean beating at its base, while a few yards nearer inland stood the latter building, which was the dwelling of the earl and his household. Wynnette had never been accused of artistic, poetic, or romantic tendencies, yet gazing on that scene she fell into thought, thence into dream, finally into vision, and she saw passing before her, in a long procession, tall and brawny, yellow-haired savages, clad in the skins of wild beasts and armed with heavy clubs which they carried over their shoulders, then barbarians in leathern jerkins, armed with bows and arrows, rude soldiers with battle-axes and shields of tough hide, then a splendid procession of mounted knights in helmets, shining armor and gorgeous accoutrements, ladies in long gowns of richest stuffs and high headgear that looked like long veils hoisted above the head on a clothes-prop, then trains of courtiers in plumed hats, full ruffs, rich doublets and trunk hose, and ladies in close velvet caps and cupid's bow borders, large ruffs, long waists, and enormous fardingales. Next a train of cavaliers with flapping bonnets, flowing locks, velvet coats, and— Wynnette! It was the voice of her father that broke the spell and dispersed the visionary train. Are you asleep, my dear? "'No, Papa, only dreaming dreams and seeing visions,' replied the girl, rousing herself. "'Well, my dear, we are entering the castle courtyard.' Wynnette looked out and saw that they were crossing the drawbridge that had been down for centuries over a moat that had been dry for nearly as long a period, and which was now thickly grown up in brushwood, and were entering under the arch of the great portcullis, which had been up for as many years as the drawbridge had been down and the moat had been dry.' They were in the middle of the hollow square that formed the courtyard of the castle. They had entered on the north side. On the same side were the stables, the kennels, and the quarters for the outdoor servants. Opposite to them, on the south side, were the conservatories and forcing beds protected by high walls. On the east side was the modern Enderby Castle where the earl and his household lived in modest comfort. But on the west side, 
Overhanging the terrible cliff was the ancient castle of Enderby, not quite a ruin, but deserted and desolate, abandoned to wind and wave, given over to bats and owls. At the foot of the awful rock the thunder of the sea was heard day and night. Those who lived habitually at the castle grew accustomed to it, but to temporary sojourners at Enderby there was something weird and terrible in the unceasing thunder of the sea against the rock. There was said to be a whirlpool through an enormous cavern at the foot of the cliff, having many inlets and outlets, and that the sea was drawn in and thrown out as by the sunken head of a many-mouthed monster. However that might be, it is certain that even in the finest weather, when the sea was calm everywhere else, the tempest raged against Enderby Cliff. "'The very, very first thing I do to-morrow shall be to explore that old castle from top to bottom,' said Wynnette to herself, as the turning of the carriage hid it from her view. End of chapter 40